90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? In a deep depression. Oh, no. What's wrong? <laughs> School starts next week. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I know it's something you don't have to worry about anymore. But I, was, I would be sympathetic, but as this show airs and as most people are listening to it, we will be in the process of getting to Colorado. And by the time next week's airs, which we'll have pre-recorded, we will be in the process of lugging everything we own into a new house. <laughs> oh, man, I don't miss that, let me tell you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like the true test of a marriage is moving. It really is. <laughs> so good luck. <laughs> well, you know, we've got our system with, I think, six or seven different colored rolls of tape that each box has a piece of tape on it. And there's a key for what room, what color tape goes in beautiful you know you could just write kitchen on it too you know it's uh <laughs> it's just not as satisfying to somebody that has you know this this compulsion to see things nice and cleanly done i love it that's amazing i bet the uh, tape is at the same place in every box too right roughly okay. yeah yeah i don't even know why i asked really <laughs> <laughs> oh that's wonderful yeah, so it'll be that show will be a little bit pre-recorded. So if you send in any feedback, uh, it might be another week before you hear us talk about it. Mm -hmm. But we've been getting lots of feedback, all kinds of great photos, and just some really interesting tidbits that folks have been sending in. I know. Yeah, I've definitely uh, spent a lot of time looking stuff up um, just from our listener email. So that is super great. Keep them coming. Uh, yes, absolutely, and. We got a a fun word from listener Steve that I thought everybody would appreciate. Uh, it's frigorific. <laughs> okay. Okay, and he says this means something like causing to be cold. So, for example, a frigorific mixture is one that becomes colder when two or more substances are combined, such as salt and ice. <laughs> I've always just, you know, endothermic or exothermic, but now this is better. I, I say, if you say frigorific, it, it's one of those kind of $10 words that would would get you some looks in colloquium. Uh, that's right. <laughs> that's absolutely right. Uh, probably a few head nods because obviously everyone already knew what that meant. I say, if you ask a geochemist if their mixture is frigorific, I'm curious if they're going to just stare at you or... <laughs> well, yes, it is they'll... delicious. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that actually ties into this week's fun paper, but yes. you have to wait until the end of the show for That's that. That's right. And it's totally worth it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but this show is actually another listener request. We've had really good listener topics. And I have to apologize. It's been a while since this request came in. A long while. I hope Graham is still listening to us. <laughs> yes. And... I, I put it off for a while because I wanted to make sure I had time to really get my thoughts down in an organized way because the way I approached this problem was kind of complicated. Uh, but when we were talking <laughs> offline before the show, you said it's not at all how you would have approached the problem. Uh, uh, it's absolutely true, which is why this will be uh, fun to do because I've got the two cent 
you know, every person <clears throat> answer and you have the, as always, <laughs> super nerdy, ridiculously more <laughs> info than anyone would have ever put into this answer. <laughs> well, it also comes from the fact that, you know, I've spent the last four years or so doing <laughs> rock and fracture mechanics and, <laughs> and it, studying the strength of rocks. Uh, yeah, it's really funny. Uh, that definitely comes through in the show notes. <laughs> Right. It's like so, me, me trying to do a paleo mag show and how it just didn't happen very well because there was so much to say. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess we should read the question here. Yes, yes. <laughs> so the question is, what makes rocks hard? Because I understand about sedimentary rocks and its layers from secondary school geography and the layers and faults make it easily fractured with a digger or a hammer and so on. Uh he says, but for instance, we were removing rocks from a field and trying to make a better pasture grazing area. And for maintenance with the machinery, they had a, a 20-ton digger uh, with a rock hammer. And they used it for two days, and it barely <laughs> made a dent in the rock. And it actually blunted the chisel point completely off. And he said this rock is locally known as windstone. It's uh, gray-blue in color, and that's about all he knows about it. So he wants to know why rock was able to completely blunt a hardened steel chisel tip right and so i have the easy answer to this and when i read graham's email i was like nope that's church absolutely no questions asked but why would i know that and it turns out we need your big explanation to explain why <laughs> i so quickly and easily answered that question <laughs> about well, why that specific rock is so ridiculously hard yes well and i looked up windstone because i wasn't familiar with that term were you uh no i wasn't either actually so it turns out it's just kind of a a slang term almost for <laughs> rock in a quarry that's really, really hard. I love it. <laughs> and see that really hard rock? Let's give it another name. <laughs> I, yes. And actually, I'm going to pull up the, the Wikipedia entry on this because it was fantastically useless. Uh, <laughs> windstone is a term used in the quarrying industry to describe any hard, dark colored rock. Examples include igneous rocks basalt, and dolerite, as well as sedimentary rocks, namely chert. <laughs> not metamorphic rocks. Those are the only rocks we're not going to call windstone. <laughs> right. <laughs> but the other two-thirds of the rock cycle, yeah, we'll call those that. <laughs> right. That's great. <laughs> That's pretty good. So what is your answer for why this, this happened? Why the rock dulled the steel bit? I, I mean, it's, it's the... It's the tiny little, you know, coding on your answer, which is that I knew it was quartz because quartz is, what is quartz? It's SiO2, right? Silicon right. and oxygen. And silica bonds are really strong, which means that quartz is really hard. It's hard to break. It's ridiculously um, hard to erode. And it's all due to those crystal bonds in this silicon oxygen. They form these little silica tetrahedra, really hard to break apart. So that's why I knew instantly that that's what he was talking about. Um, I guess when I think about rocks being hard, I think I don't generally think on that small atomic scale, which is why I thought this was funny because a lot of what your stuff is is on that scale, which is you know the real answer. But, I mean, I think of rocks being hard based on what they're cemented with because I'm a sedimentologist. So that's what I think about. Are rocks that are cemented with quartz really hard to drill? <laughs> rocks cemented with calcite? It's true, yeah. Super easy to drill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and this was actually at the end of my 
right. train of stuff that I put together, <laughs> but it's it's Mo's hardness scale. Right, right, exactly, which gets down to the whole point of what we're going to talk about, which is all about the crystalline structure of rocks. Right, and so Mo's scale is a very simple 1 to 10 scale, and quartz is a 7, mm-hmm. so the higher number is harder, and steel is a 6.5. Yeah. So, so there's your chisel tip. See you later. <laughs> right. But that's not a very satisfying answer because if you're like me, you say seven what? <laughs> yeah. Like, what is seven? It's seven this, doesn't mean anything. It's this awful relative. It's relative hardness, right? This rock, does this rock scratch this rock? And that's how you figure out the scale when you're in intro geology class and you've got all these minerals in front of you. And that's what you do. Well, and then there's the absolute hardness scale, which I don't know if you deal with that much. Not at all. <laughs> yeah. So most hardness goes one, two, three, four, five. Mm-hmm. Absolute hardness, the absolute hardness for each of those one, two, three, four, five on the most scale is one, three, nine, twenty one, forty eight. So it's not even logarithmic. It's just kind of random. <laughs> totally non intuitive. Yeah. <laughs> Fabulous. <laughs> right. And if you get engineers to talk about Rockwell hardness and all kinds of other. Uh, I'm not going to say nonsense, but all kinds of other hardness (laughs) scales that don't really mean anything uh, in terms of why the material's hard. But I want to start out with saying rocks are much weaker than physics predicts. This was was pretty interesting to me, and it makes a lot of sense when we talk about why. I mean, especially if you study rocks. If you don't study rocks, it probably doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. (laughs) And... We're going to throw away all that stuff that you work on that are particles cemented together, where you have to think about cementation strength and all that, because eh, it's, well, we're going to look at one crystal, because that's about as complicated as we can get here. Right, exactly. Um, Before we do this, because I know we haven't talked a ton about this on the show, I want to talk about the differences between minerals and rocks super fast, because what we're really talking about when we talk about these crystals, are individual minerals, right? And so minerals have this very specific definition. I know we've talked about it before. Ice is a mineral. <laughs> and so it minerals, is. different minerals amalgamated together are what make up rocks. Right. And so you could say that by looking at one crystal, we're really looking at one piece of the cement in your sedimentary rocks. Right. Exactly. Or a piece of a clast or whatever. But it's easier to think about these in terms of igneous rocks, probably, which are a whole right. bunch of different minerals, crystals of different minerals that are that have grown together into what we would call a rock. So you're looking at somebody's granite, in quotes, countertop. Right. <laughs> in their kitchen. And each of those chunks that look different would be a different mineral and possibly multiple crystals grown together of that same mineral. Right. Exactly. Which uh, Graham's windstone that was so hard is just made up of one mineral. Basically, it's all quartz. It's just how those bonds are arranged would make me say it's chert, which we'll get into here in a little bit. Right. And the other caveat is we're going to limit all of our discussion to what's called the brittle field. <laughs> Yeah, we don't want any of this heat business making our metamorphic rocks plasticky. Right. So as you heat rocks up and you go to higher pressures, they start to deform and move and break by a different mechanism Yeah. than they do in the brittle field. And we're just going to talk about shallow crust, you know, 10 kilometers and up kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Because Graham was not below 10 kilometers <laughs> when he was doing this. Yes, exactly. And that other stuff's really hard, that too. Well, I guess right. it's not hard. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. Uh. <laughs> oh, that was awful. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so we'll start out with the, the crystal is a regular structure of bonded atoms. That's part of the definition is that it's a regular structure. Right. So you could think of these as little steel balls held together by springs, where the balls represent atoms and the springs represent the bonds holding the atoms together. Uh, if you ever in you know an elementary chemistry class played with the little ball and stick models, I mean, that's what we're talking about here. You do the same thing when you're talking about what constitutes the makeup of a mineral and its crystal and structure, because each mineral has a unique crystal and structure. Right. But what holds those bonds together, really? You know, electricity, right? <laughs> Basically. So, I mean, there's, there's ionic bonds, there's covalent, you know, there's all these different types of bonds. Yeah. And yes, we can go into strong nuclear force and weak nuclear, but well. basically we're going to talk about electricity. Right. And <laughs> these bonds are stretchy. They, that's why I said we represent them with springs, because the bonds can compress and stretch as you stress the rock. Uh, Think about a rubber band or something, right? It's it's elastic. We can stretch it and compress it, and the bonds don't break unless we go too far. This is so interesting. I feel like this is one of those lies that we tell at the elementary level, but until you get into it more, you don't realize it because, I mean, I even just described it, that ball and stick model. And we have those big 3D models of different mineral structures too, and you never think about the bonds being any sort of elastic. Right, but if you look at you know some of these 3D animations or simulations right. of proteins or of water molecules or anything, mm -hmm. they're vibrating. That vibration right. and their movement represents temperature, right? Right, exactly, by uh, definition. Right. So these bonds are stretching and compressing. And if you were to make a plot of stress that you're putting versus the, on the material versus the atomic separation or the space between two atoms or how far you've stretched to spring – you get sort of a sine curve. Okay. Uh, we approximate it as a sine curve, generally. <laughs> How close is it? Eh, pretty close. <laughs> close enough. <laughs> it's geology. Not an exact uh, science. Uh, yes. Great. <laughs> so, no, no, it's it's actually pretty close. Uh, and what we there are analytical solutions, but for doing this simple analysis, the sine curve is more than good enough. Great. So as you try to pull the bonds apart, the stress increases, mm -hmm. right? Or yeah. so you're pulling, you're more and more and more stressed. The bonds are stretching. I'm doing this with my arms sitting here. It's too bad this <laughs> video. And, I'm doing the same uh, thing. <laughs> yeah. And then suddenly it starts to decrease the stress. Uh-oh. <laughs> right. So what you've done is you've pulled and pulled and pulled, and they're trying to hold together as strong as they can. And eventually they get so far apart that... As you pull them further apart, the force decreases, kind of an inverse square law type thing. That's really interesting. I've never looked at this level of breaking rocks. Right. So th that is failure of a material. Uh, as the material starts to permanently deform, we would say it's yielding. And then finally, it brittly fails when it goes crack. Right. Okay. And you could hear this, you know, if you bend a pencil or whatever. I don't know if anybody still uses wood pencils, but... Uh, yes, there's been some pencil fight incidents at uh, my child's school, so yes. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, <laughs> <There's>, fair enough. <laughs> they're still happening. <laughs> All right, so that, that peak stress, where the stress starts going back down again as you pull apart, that would be what we would normally call the tensile failure strength, assuming that we're pulling it apart, because compression is basically the same thing, but it's easier to talk about tension. It's what most engineers think about. Oh, 
Interesting. In rocks, we generally think of compression. Yeah. Engineers say we have the sign flipped. It, <laughs> basically mechanics, you know, same mechanics. Oh, that's pretty, uh, yeah, I always think about compression as well. How interesting. Right. So the, the peak stress is proportional to the modulus of the rock, this tensile failure strength. Uh-huh. And the modulus is how squishy the rock is. And we have these numbers for all different types of rocks. Oh, yes. You can measure it in the lab all day. Yeah. Uh, but you, know, you could think of it as, uh, I don't know, a sponge has a very low modulus, mm-hmm. whereas a piece of, you know, fruitcake <laughs> has a much higher <laughs> modulus. It's just after Christmas still. Uh, oh. <laughs> wow. I mean, putting a piece of fruitcake in a testing machine could be an interesting experiment in itself. you got to do that right before you leave. I digress, yeah. Uh, So what's interesting here is that when we create a fracture, a lot of cool stuff goes on. (laughs) So much cool stuff you could write a PhD thesis about. Well, as a matter of fact, uh, (laughs) yes. And one of the neat things, and this is old mechanics, uh, is you, you make surface area, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So you're taking something that was all one piece and you pull it apart and now you have two pieces that each have a surface. Right. So we generally talk about how much surface energy that takes. Okay. And surface energy is just the energy needed to break the bonds in a unit area. Ah, okay. That makes sense. Right. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're putting work into this thing. And we're eventually breaking it. Right. And we're, again, we're going to ignore work hardening, work softening, all that. All that junk, yes. <laughs> right. <clears throat> we're talking simple here. So this calculation was done in the 1900s. That makes sense, too. And that's why I say we're talking pretty simple. And experimentally at that time, we knew that for a lot of materials, their modulus was tens of gigapascals. Okay. And that's a nice round number i always say garden variety rock is about 30 gigapascals so what are these okay what what kind of materials are we talking about throw out a few more of these numbers metal ceramic glass okay not wood but a lot of concretes all that kind of stuff okay tens of gigapascals gotcha It, it might it might be like eight or nine and it might be 80 or closer to 100, but tens of GPA is a good number. Okay. And a gigapascal is times 10 to the ninth pascals. Right. Right. All right. And the tensile strength, though, when we actually would put a piece of steel or a piece of glass or a piece of rock in a machine and pull on it, was tens of megapascals, which is 10 to the sixth. Yeah. So a couple orders of magnitude difference here. Yeah. So we're off by three orders of magnitude, which is not close enough for even <laughs> geology. <laughs> It's not exact, but it's more exact than that. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, three orders of magnitude, being off by a factor of a thousand is pretty atrocious. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. So the theory and the experiment did not line up at all, and it really bugged a few people. <laughs> um, this is a beautiful example of the box quote about models, really. I mean, you can have these models all day, but what do they really mean in reality? Right. And so this is another cool story. Uh, The guy that bugged the most was this guy named Alan Arnold Griffith, or I I did not know his name was Alan Arnold until I was preparing this because everybody just knows him as A.A. Griffith. Griffith, Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So this guy was born in 1893. 
and didn't actually do much with geology, really. That's not surprising. It seems like we always have non-geologists that come in and solve all our problems for us. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, Um, So he was an engineer, right? He was an engineer. He's most famous for developing the axial flow turbojet engine. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. I knew A.A. Yeah. A. Griffith. That's very interesting because when I read your uh, notes, I never thought a thing about that person. But, yeah, it makes sense now. Yeah. So it's an engineer that does a lot with jet engines and turbines. And jets and turbines are two examples of places where you need really high-performance material. Right. And so he's obviously bugged by the fact that his math's telling him he can have a piece <laughs> of metal that's a thousand times stronger than what he's got and saying, oh, where can I find this stuff? <laughs> You know, what's oh. what's wrong with this? And so he published a couple papers in uh, the 1920s. Mm-hmm. And he put forward this idea as to why this was. Uh, as it turns out, like so many, uh, it took years for this to be verified. Right. Because he had to wait for the invention and perfection of the scanning electron microscope. Oh, he was alive when that happened, though. So that's at least vindicating, right? He was. Yeah, he died in the 60s. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So that means what we're looking at, the answer to why theory isn't reality here, is on a microscopic level. It is. And the uh, the upgoer 5 XKCD explanation <laughs> of this uh-huh. would be itsy bitsy cracks make it weak. <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> That's beautiful. And that's really, you know, we can't say itsy bitsy cracks, so we call them defects. Yeah, that's a pretty fancy name for it, too, I think. <laughs> yeah, uh, but defects or flaws, uh, you'll hear it both ways, they exist at every scale. Mm-hmm. And a cool way to look at this is I'm going to talk about the atomic scale in the crystal structure. But you can also consider this like a continental scale, you know, plate boundaries. Right. On Earth. So defects exist at all scales. Mm-hmm. But they all have one thing in common. And what happens around cracks in materials? Um, well, if you're me, you're looking for fluid flow, but that's not what you're asking for. <laughs> no. <laughs> Stress concentrations. Very complicated um very complicated issues, basically. <laughs> well, no, so it's not really that bad. What happens is if you get a crack in a material, it changes the stress, stress field of the material. So if you had a metal plate and you were pulling on it, it's roughly evenly stressed. Right. If you now have a tiny crack in it, at the very tips of that crack, the stress is going to be very high. Right. If you use a simplified solution, the math actually says the stress goes to infinity. Awesome. Right. Then uh, this is actually how cracks propagate. Because you get a stress concentration at the tip, and once the crack grows to a critical crack length, the fracture can be self-propagating. That's why cracks in your windshield run, if they get long enough. That makes total sense. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the classical mathematical solution is what we call the penny-shaped crack, which just means an <laughs> elliptical crack. <laughs> Yeah. I, I don't know who coined the term penny-shaped crack. Yeah. Uh, nice. <laughs> if we're going for bad puns today. Uh, yes. Yes, we are. 
I don't know why they chose that. I would have just settled on elliptical crack or high aspect ratio crack or something like that. I mean, if you've got such an unscientific term as crack, you've got to put something like penny in front of it. Elliptical is way too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so the idea is that at the tip of the crack, you get a stress concentration. And that makes the material a little bit weaker macroscopically. Mm -hmm. So there's your defect. Right. So if we say that the minor radius of the crack is going to be equal to the lattice spacing of the crystal, mm -hmm. and you plug all this in, we get a crack half length of about one micron. Super tiny. Yeah. Uh, but the idea is all materials have lots of these little tiny micro cracks, which are called Griffith defects in his honor. Oh, nice. And, you know, they could be from the atomic scale up to things like pores, grain boundaries, all that. I mean, and in geology, you're going to have to for real correct me because I'm not sure. But just thinking about growing a crystal, I mean, you're melting a piece of crust, right, which is this homogenous or non-homogenous. There's a word for that. Heterogeneous. <laughs> Big heterogeneous <laughs> chunk. And so while in your quartz, you know, it's silica and oxygen, but sometimes you can get other stuff shoved in those crystal lattices. And the other stuff sometimes isn't the exact same size. Like in the difference between calcite and dolomite is you get some magnesiums instead of some calciums, right? And so that's going to change the shape of that crystal lattice and it's going to present as these defects. Right. You can think about it if you had a phone book. So think about a clay because clays have this nice flat platey repeated crystal structure, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Think about if you had a phone book and each page were uh, a layer or, you know, each group of pages, whatever you want to do it. Now you get a bunch of papers from some company and you stick them in the phone book and you close the phone book. Well, that phone book is bulged, right? Right. And you've created a crack. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. And at the tips of that crack would be higher stresses. So as you stress the material, the stress at the tip of those cracks goes up faster and the material fails much sooner than it would. And it turns out if you have these few micron length cracks, which corresponds to the lattice spacing, you get a reduction of strength by about a factor of a thousand. Oh, there you go, huh? Yep, it all drops out really nice. That is very interesting. So did uh, Griffith originally, I mean, he originally understood about these defects, right? He just couldn't prove it. Yeah, that's the amazing thing to me is this all came out of his mind. Yeah, like how do you sit there and think about something... When you've never seen an SEM photomicrograph of it. <laughs> no, he just said, well, we know that mineral structures can have weird things happen. Or, well, you know, metal has a regular structure too. Right. Uh, can have weird things happen to it. What happens there? And how can we, you know, what if I scale down what we know about crack mechanics? Uh, he also did a lot about crack propagation, which we talked about. Like when does a crack start growing? Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. some cracks, you know, if your windshield gets hit by a small rock... It might produce a small crack, and it never grows any further than that. Right. How big does the crack need to be before it keeps it growing? It takes off, yeah. Uh, is that is a whole other show. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is super hard to me to imagine someone that deals with things like metals coming up with this stuff, because 
to me, I mean, I, I know scientifically on a different scale, but that's because I've seen SEM pictures that metals aren't, you know, as homogenous and perfectly orderly as you would think. But it's easy to think of in rocks, I feel like. So that's that's pretty interesting. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. And there's there's a famous example of this crack tip stress causing a big problem. Mm-hmm. Which is the de Havilland Comet aircraft. Okay. Several of these planes went down and they couldn't figure out why. And it turns out it was stress concentrations in the fuselage around sharp corners on windows. Wow. And the cabin would catastrophically fail. You would get these small cracks around the edges of the windows. They would start growing. They would join, make a big crack, and the airframe would fall apart in midair. Oh, my gosh. Uh, so that happened. They changed the windows to the, the squircle style <laughs> window. So Is when it, you get on a plane next time, the word? look at your windows. That's the word. Yes, yeah, squircle. Uh <laughs> Squoval is um, the word when you're talking about doing a manicure and you have a square oval shape, squoval. So I don't know why I'm surprised. Yeah. So next time you get on a plane, look at the window that you're looking out of. And you'll see it's a rectangle with the corners rounded. And that's so you don't get stress concentrations. That sounds like a physical mechanics homework problem. Oh, yeah. And (laughs) modern airplanes even have these tear strips in them that are metal that is designed to be sacrificial so if a crack propagates oh. somewhere in the airframe it propagates into this material and stops there oh that's beautiful uh there was a book and i'm actually looking at a copy of it uh, right now called no highway by mm-hmm. neville shoot that came out a few years before these planes crashed uh-huh. and remember this plane is called the comet uh-huh. <laughs> in this book The book is about an engineer that discovers that the planes that this company is building are all going to fall out of the sky after so many hours because there's a crack in the airframe. No. And the plane was called the reindeer. (gasps) Is this like a whistleblower thing? (laughs) No, it's, but it is kind of creepy. This book came out. That is super creepy. Yeah. uh, (gasps) It's fascinating. And it's a neat book to read because it is a fiction thriller genre type book uh engineering thriller i guess that's a thing (laughs) Uh, but it does have some mechanics in it as well so it's it's worth picking up a copy you can get it on your kindle for a few bucks that is very interesting um that is really strange i i there the smacks of some type of whistleblower (laughs) i I, I can't believe that Hmm. interesting yeah so graham in answer to your question (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> your hardened steel tool bit got dull because bonds between atoms are really strong. And the only reason it didn't get much duller or just shatter is because there are tiny cracks in the crystal structure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That make the rock a thousand times weaker than it should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so that's my really long answer to. <laughs> right. Yeah. And mine how was, that works. Mm-hmm. Quartz has really high atomic bond strengths. And not a lot of defects. There you go. That's why that specific <laughs> windstone was very bad to your <laughs> to your digger. <laughs> <laughs> Rocks are hard because they're cemented together. It's called cement. It's hard. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I'm gonna. I'll put a link in the show notes to uh, 
I don't know how many listeners watched or remember the Bill Nye the Science Guy episodes, uh, but at the end of many of them, they had a music video that was themed oh, after. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, there's one called Rocks Rock Harder. Nice. And I will I will put a link to that in. I doubt we can play it without being in violation of some kind of copyright Yeah, law. that's probably true. Right. <laughs> uh, that's beautiful. I didn't realize that's where that came from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Of course. <laughs> I had a friend that wrote in Bill Nye, the science guy, for president on his ballot. It was beautiful. It's a, it's a great option. Yeah, it really was. <laughs> yeah. Well... I think that means it's probably time for everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay! Yeah, I don't I have my bells with me. And we're recording late again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, you found another one from BMJ, and it's a doozy. I, I can't stop. I can't stop. <laughs> They're so amazing. Um, so, shaken, not stirred. Bioanalytical Study of the Antioxidant Activities of Martinis <laughs> by Trevithick et al. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I know each each paper that we come to, I keep saying this is my favorite figure, but the figure in this paper, the only figure actually, um, is a picture of... <laughs> Sean Connery is James Bond. So this is clearly my favorite figure <laughs> of any paper. Well, and I think I might be able to cite this paper appropriately as showing that, that Sean Connery was <laughs> yes. the best James Bond. Yes, exactly. I absolutely agree. <laughs> um, so I just read uh, Casino Royale. Um, I hadn't read any of the Bond books, and it was fantabulous. It was so great. And this is a <laughs> great study. <laughs> Um, so the whole point is that um, the background is that moderate consumption of alcohol seems to reduce the risks of cardiovascular disease stroke and cataracts and the thought is it's through either antioxidants um, flavonoids polyphenol contents and you hear this a lot when people say red wine is good for you right right that's an excuse for yes (laughs) drinking a glass of red wine every Uh night exactly And so we're specifically looking at James Bond's shaken, not stirred, um, famous martini that he drinks, right? Um, The objectives, as laid out in these weird BMJ abstracts, is fantastic. Um, As Mr. Bond is not afflicted by cataracts or cardiovascular disease, an investigation was conducted to determine whether the mode of preparing martinis has an influence on their antioxidant capacity. As with so many of the fun papers from BMJ, what time of night did this paper get conceived? (laughs) Obviously, during happy hour, obviously. (laughs) Yeah, because I I never would have even thought about... It's the same materials going into the martini. Yeah. You're just shaking it, not stirring it. Yeah, why would that matter? Uh, and I don't know. I guess you think about it and you're like, oh, well, why do you pour wine through a, oh, a, a decanter an and yeah, all that jazz to mm-hmm. right? And I always poo-poo those things, but um, this, <laughs> as silly as this sounds, this actually has a very interesting result because there is a big difference, a really big difference in whether you're going to shake or stir your martini. Right. So the 
Shaken martinis were much more effective at deactivating hydrogen peroxide, which was their test for the antioxidant capabilities. Right. Uh, so you think about hydrogen peroxide, it oxidizes things, and we want antioxidants. So, okay, yeah, this is a fair test. Right. Yeah. Um, this was really interesting because they, they not only just did shaken and stirred martinis, but they also... They blew um, oxygen and nitrogen. They bubbled it through martinis to see if that actually changed uh, the ability to deactivate the hydrogen peroxide. Right. And so, uh, you know, approximating shaking. And so that didn't differ from the shaken martini, but the stirred martini was much different. Um, but they also tried, they went above and beyond here, which must have been rough. <laughs> and they yeah. did some Sauvignon Blancs and some whiskeys. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, again, how do you do this on an expense report? <laughs> it's for science, man. I know, but the policy probably says, I don't know, about, uh, let's see, where was this? Uh, it's in Canada. Well, that's what I was just going to say. This is not maybe, the maybe, maybe the policy is a little bit more lax, but if we tried to turn an alcohol... As an as an expense, I don't think it would go over very well. Well, they did have a grant from Labatt Breweries, so. Ah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> so it probably came across a little bit easier. And yeah, like you said, it's Canada. And they're much cooler than we are. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So anyway, that, that was the main result out of this. Uh, it's a really short paper. There are a couple of tables uh, that show you that they did pretty high in on all of these, you know, they were doing uh, eight or nine experiments with each type of drink. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, so they could get a robust result and the results were very robust. And I mean, and it's clear once you, um, <laughs> once you add the hydrogen peroxide, it's not like you have to worry about lab assistants drinking this or anything. So. That's true. You know, there is that. Um, it was cool because they, they did this separately for vermouth and then for the gin as well um, to see, you know, which one had better, which one was better at these antioxidants. And it turns out, you know, the mixture of them and then shaking them is the best way. And so the results clearly state <laughs> that um, the conclusions was that 007's profound state of health may be due, at least in part, to compliant bartenders. Yeah, so I guess next time you go into a bar, you should order a martini, shaken, not stirred, and right. watch the eye roll. <laughs> You'll be like, hey, it's for my health. Yes, exactly. Um, there was in the discussion, the very last uh, <laughs> the very last sentence in the paper is, the authors have not examined any antioxidant contributions from olives. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, this is excellent. Well, if, if you want to order a scientifically backed drink that you can give the citation to your bartender, right. this is the exactly. one. You can whip out figure one of this paper. It's yeah. beautiful. And they, they even tell you exactly how many ounces of each uh, right. they yeah. used it's, somewhere it's, in here in the methods. Yeah, It's a recipe plus a scientific paper. <laughs> right. Uh, so two parts gin, one part vermouth. Uh, so six milliliters and three milliliters, mm -hmm. respectively. Yeah, leave out the H2O2, though. Not good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> well, that was your Fun Paper Friday. I think we did an okay job of keeping this one a little bit shorter, unlike <laughs> last week's. Uh, yeah, yeah, we did, mostly because mm -hmm, my answer was two sentences, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> if 
you would like to send in a fun paper or send in some feedback, I promise we will get to it. Like I said, it might just be uh, another week or two yeah. before you hear it on the air. <laughs> Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Uh, you can email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. You can interact with us on Twitter. Together, we're at don'tpanicgeo. I'm at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. Um, and then you can always find us in the Swung Slack chat room, swung.rocks, on the Don't Panic channel. Exactly. And don't forget, we have stickers as well. Yay. We've sent several out and had some requests. But if you would like a sticker to plaster on your laptop, mug, car, whatever other things you want to decorate with our logo, they're, we'd be happy to send you they're some. They're very high quality, too. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and until next week, remember... Don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. Except when you're off by three orders of magnitude. <laughs> Th then it needs to be more exact. <laughs>